previously on Popping Collars. I, as a as a counterexample, I think that Sherlock does everything right that I can't stand about Big Bang Theory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is, it. you know, friendship and romance both are not about finding someone who completes you. Right. They're about finding someone with whom you can share the best and worst aspects of yourself mm. in a way that the best aspects get better and the worst aspects also get better. That kind of choked me up a little bit, Lucas. <laughs> That's really beautiful. That is really lovely. We've lost this. <laughs> Sorry, I'm okay. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. <laughs> Welcome to Popping Collars, the podcast that lives in the space between religion and pop culture. My name is Ricardo Avila, and I am the interim rector at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in lovely Long Beach, California. With me is the irrepressible Betsy Gonzalez. Betsy, hello there. Tell everybody what's going on. Hey, Ricardo. I'm over here in Alexandria, Virginia at the Episcopal High School. Thanks, Betsy. Also with us is the inimitable Liz Easton. (laughs) Hi, Liz. What's going on with you? Hey, Ricardo. I'm in Omaha, Nebraska, where I serve as the canon to the ordinary for the Diocese of Nebraska. Thank you, Liz. And we have a very special guest with us on the show. His name is Mr. William Bonnell. William, mystery man, tell us who you are. Latin teacher at large. (laughs) (laughs) Which, Which could provide a nice dovetail with the topic today. Uh, So this is our 61st episode, and today's focus is on a show that uh, some of you out there have been clamoring for us to cover, I am told. It is The Young Pope. It stars Jude Law as the eponymous Pope Pius XIII, who ascends to the sovereign seat quite unexpectedly and becomes a rather stunningly unpleasant leader of the (laughs) Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Please note, this series is not based on fact which I somehow thought would be the case. I thought it was going to be a historical thing about some young Pope in the 14th century, (laughs) but no. (laughs) So there are a lot of things in the show that have enough verisimilitude to some things that go on in the Vatican, probably that sometimes it's hard to distinguish what's true in the life of the church and what has been hyped up for the purposes of the show. As we say on our podcast, one of the conceits here is that people use popular media to make meaning out of the world around them. And I suppose the thing we're trying to understand tonight with the young Pope or today is faith and the Roman Catholic Church and power. So, William, what sort of theological concept or idea on the series either spoke to you or makes you want to speak out against it? Uh, what, what caught your uh, imagination on the show? It took a long time for that show to even touch on matters of faith or theology. For most of the opening episodes, it seemed to be nothing more than House of Cards and Cassocks, <laughs> <laughs> where you were where you were just mm-hmm. seeing stark, brute power play within an institution. In fact, it seemed that, like Caligula, like Donald Trump, Pius the Thirteenth was quite the wrong man to be entrusted with absolute power because he was mentally unstable, mentally unfit. And that's sort of what we focused on for most of, for, well, for all of these episodes, but startlingly for the first at least four episodes, where even though it was supposed to be in the church, we didn't even get a, a liturgy, not even let alone a proper liturgy, into the fourth episode. We had to wait a long time for faith. When we finally did get faith, 
interestingly enough, it was after we had met all these characters who seemed to be just wrapped up in their own egos and in the exercise of unrestrained power or were jockeying for influence on this Pius XIII, we finally learned that a lot all that all of these characters sincerely believed in God and felt that they felt deeply their own faith. And yet and yet they smoked while wearing vestments. Wow. Yeah, that's not good for the fabric and it's also not a good example visually. We saw the we saw Pope Pius in the thirteenth himself twice set a hot coffee mug directly on a mahogany desktop. Also <laughs> not very edifying. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I would have stopped right there if I'd noticed. <laughs> Finally, we learned that they were really deeply, at their very root, felt that had they had a sincere, deep belief in God, which was sometimes very incongruous with the way that they act. I want to fess up right away that, true to form, I haven't finished the season. And this time it wasn't out of like popping collar slackerism. It was because um, I found the first several episodes almost unbearable for my like optimistic, sincere little heart. Like I just, it was, it was almost painful for me to watch. Now it's beautiful. It's it, in every way, the cinematography and the direction is just really gorgeous. The Pope is also really gorgeous. Um, so that <laughs> wasn't too bad, but I just found the plot to be really, really difficult. And I would say that in terms of like a religious or spiritual, I don't know if a theological concept that I found compelling was just starting to be revealed as I was watching was this idea of loneliness, sort of spiritual loneliness, which I think ultimately is a thing that isn't, doesn't just happen to popes who are, you know, very isolated, but all of us struggle with an idea of loneliness and our relationship to God. And I'll say, I should say that one of my favorite genres in art is when the sacred and the profane sort of clash in an interesting way. And that was definitely happening in this show. But for me, it and this is weird for me to say, but it almost just was a little too blasphemous for me. Um, yeah, I, I, like Liz, I also, the loneliness aspect, I found really interesting. The idea that there isn't enough of you to be in relationship with people. I think being an individual balancing a family and a child and also trying to have this whole relationship, an intense relationship with my job that I don't, that is a calling and not always necessarily a job. There are aspects of it that feel like a job, a Catholic view, or at least a Catholic view is portrayed on the show of why, why having outside relationships can be difficult. There isn't enough of you to also be in a relationship with somebody else. Um, But I was also really taken with the element of the hiddenness Mm. and the, when he talks about Kubrick and J.D. Salinger, you know, who, what do all these, you know, these, these icons have and that you didn't see them and his whole element of hiding himself throughout, you know, we're not going to make plates with my face on it, which some of that is kind of like, (laughs) yeah, don't make plates with your face on it, you know, make something attractive by an artisan or something else. Uh, It was, I I was like you, uh, like you, Liz, you know, the opening montage uh, that's shown on most of the episodes where he's walking past all those works of art and a comet is flying through them. And then it smashes into a statue of uh, John Paul II, 
and topples him over. I was like, what? You can't do that. He's like <laughs> beloved. Seeing that statue toppled over time and again was like, wait a minute. you That's not okay. But then you think about the show itself and it went far further than just that. I have to confess, I sort of reveled in what felt like an expose of Roman Catholic power. That the amazing thing about the show for me, and it didn't happen for me until like episodes nine or 10, is that they took what I thought was a nasty character who I actually thought it was going to be, he was the antichrist somehow. And it was going to turn out that way. It was so bad those first few episodes, but they actually kind of made some good with it by the end of the series. They kind of, they didn't necessarily redeem the process, but they redeemed the human beings who were caught up in that process of power struggle and wicked, casual wickedness and um, gave a message of hope by the end which I thought was pretty clever. I wasn't quite sold on it, but I appreciated the effort. I kept wanting the Pope to come to his senses in different ways. Like I was surprised that Voyella was actually a more liberal cardinal, the secretary of state guy, and wanted some of those loosening, some of that loosening to happen. Uh, But that uh, the Pope and how he thought that being strict and unforgiving was the way to do it and that absence is presence, you know, the mystery thing, make them fill in the gaps with fear and obedience. And that will make a good church. And I don't just makes me think like, you know, we, we talk in the Episcopal church about, well, the traditions are good, but people get stuck in the traditions and we need to modify some of our liturgies and things to reach out to the unchurched so that they feel more welcome here. And at what point do we need to say, here's actually where the boundary is about what we believe and don't believe. You know, we give you a lot of leeway within that because we're all human, but we're not without our own kind of sense of what's right and wrong. I mean, that's what Pius XIII's message was, which was sort of a uh, which was sort of a, a brutal parody of Pope Benedict XVI's message. When Benedict, um, one of his early messages was for a smaller, stronger church, uh, strengthening the faith. Maybe we'll have fewer members. Maybe people will feel turned away. But we really need to strengthen the core of who we are and take a firm stand. That was Benedict's message of a smaller, stronger church. In a way, it's in a way it's trying to become a pre-Constantinian church before we begin to compromise ourselves with the world. I mean, straight up the closed friends. Mm. <laughs> the bringing back the papal tiara from Washington. It. It, oh, yeah, that my my favorite outfit was with the sunglasses, with the green <laughs> velvet gloves, with the rings, and then the cope. That was my favorite outfit, personally. <laughs> my favorite outfit was the white tracksuit, and uh, <laughs> my my favorite moment was when he and his best friend sort of broke free to sort of ro- roam around Rome and they run into the prostitute and she says, um, you two look like a couple of priests. And he says, we're not priests. Would priests wear track suits? That was just one of my favorite. I thought it was delightful. And I kept wondering, how does he have all these white garments that he's not getting dirty? Because that's what popes wear. Francis never wears anything other than white. Benedict never wore anything other than white. I mean, when you have all those nuns who are doing your laundry, you can wear white as much as you want. (laughs) That is true. That's why I don't even buy white clothing. That's what I need. I need a bunch of nuns to do my laundry in order to get me like 
the courage to buy white jeans or something. It's another miracle. But also, the, I love the brocade mm-hmm. on the. I don't know what the, his kind of normal outfit. It's a white cassock. It's yeah, a white and cassock. It was just like the, the capelet with like the mm-hmm. the mini cape over the What's top. The Mosetta. Mosetta. Yeah, the Mosetta, Mosetta which is. The yes. show of authority. You'll notice that Benedict XVI no longer wears the Mosetta because oh, yes. because there's only one pope. So Francis wears the Mosetta, the white ah. Mosetta. I have never seen that white cassock or Mosetta for any pope, not even Pius XII, with with that gold decor gold. on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, never. That was- That's interesting. So that connects right away to what we see that the church is just full clergy or just nothing more than a lot of wounded people. They're orphans, they're repressed homosexuals, they're heterosexuals mm. who have that low, low, low self-esteem, alcoholics. Well, that might be because of all the repression. You really get a sense that these are all wounded souls. Oh, the, the one that gets sent to New to Boston to deal with the sex crisis. He says, he sort of he sort of speaks for them all when he says, when he says he can't live anywhere else other he than can't the Vatican. Cross the street. Yeah, he I don't know how to cross, cross the street. The street. And they're sort of all like that. Uh, and Spencer, uh, when he denounced Lenny in about episode two, that you know, just because you feel that you've suffered in your life, now you're just trying to make everybody suffer and to ruin the church. And right. you just get the sense, all these broken people. Just going to say about the brokenness, like, I, I really believe that that's true. Not in the, hopefully not in the active bleeding phase of woundedness, but I really do think that many clergy bring into their ministry this experience of, of brokenness, of our own fallibility. And over time, you find that those are exactly the gifts that God leads with in your own ministry. Now, there needs to be a level of um, care and healing and, and health. But I, I've just noticed in, in my own ministry, one of the biggest surprises was the parts of my ego that um, are most fragile. It's exactly those broken places that God sort of shines a light through in my ministry. Gosh, if we all had to be totally whole and healed to do this kind of ministry, it would be a small, smaller church indeed. Well, and that element of his orphanness, and when you said it earlier that that his absence is presence, I mean, that's the story of him, of his parents. And I don't know whether Venice was an element of letting that go and having that couple who's standing out there, whether they are or are not those people turning around and walking away, whether they're real or not, I don't know. But his woundedness about being left, he's constructed in the wake of that. Relationships, Betsy spot on about like how he creates his own family. And they are a support system, but in some way, at some level, he's still rejecting them. Like Spencer, you know, he could have really gone to him for advice from the start instead of repudiating him. And Sister Mary, she does help him out. I guess she's all right. And then the brother is the brother. So, I mean, he had relationship. And I sort of want to say without any proof, that might be what saves him in a way. Even though he pushes them away throughout the whole show, for most of the show, they do get in and they stick with him. That shocked me. Like when he spoke with the Cardinals, Spencer was the first one to get up and kiss his feet. And then Dussolier, his brother figure, went up and kissed his feet. 
I was like, wow, they've been against him this whole time, and yet they stay with him. Uh, The foot kissing was not about relationship. It was about submission. The Mm -hmm. Pope is the Pope, and he's setting the new ground rules. Well, the really old ground rules of being the absolute tyrannical, despotic prince of the church. And if you want to stay on this ship, you submit. So Mm -hmm. they're just saying, yeah, this is the new status quo. There's an irony in there submitting to that centuries-old tradition that no one had done in the last previous seven decades of kissing the Pope's toe. Oh, is that right? It's not about, that part isn't about relationship. This is why there's the smashing down of the icon of of John Paul II, who was about relationship. This is a return to the medieval papacy of being carried in on the Sedes Gestatoria, in the papal tiara, advancing forth his velvet slipper, making it very clear that we're back to the medieval papacy. Well, I was curious about that because I'm not sure. I know that this show aired in Europe before it aired here in the States, and I don't really know the timeline of its production and creation, but it seems to me that he, the the young Pope, is such a, is just remarkably different from Pope Francis, right? Who it, it must be some sort of commentary on sort of the quote new, Pope. And you mentioned, William, the um, interesting similarities with Pope Benedict and sort of whether there's some sort of flashback to his papacy. But it's interesting that we now have a Pope who all of those um, vestments are probably stored in a closet (laughs) somewhere in the papal museum. They're not, he's not wearing them, right? So he's so different from the current Pope. I don't know what that means, but it it just seems interesting to me. But at the same time, shaking it up. I mean, the, at the same time, you know, there's there, you're looking to, you know, people like, can this pope reform the curia? Can this, mm-hmm. you know, can can change happen? He's he's unpredictable. He goes off script. He breaks away and he's talking with this person you know, that there is an element of that, too. And just to keep it, I mean, just for a little more perspective, he's not just a riff on Benedict the 16th. But of course, he takes the name Pius the 13th as an homage to Pius the 12th, who was the last pre-Vatican II pope. Right. Uh, and does anyone, in, I can't remember in the show, do they ever remark on that? Because obviously the name that the Pope chooses says a lot about what they imagine their ministry will be like. I can't remember. Do they remark on that at any point? I don't think they Did make it? that explicit connection. No. Yeah. Pius Twelfth had no training as a pastor, as a priest pastor. He was never in a parish. His, his focus was canon law. He, as soon as he was ordained, he was on the papal staff in the early 1900s. He knew nothing of that kind of pastoral relationship. And one gets the sense that a lot of those in the papal circle of the cardinals have no experience of dealing with people at the pastoral level. They're canon lawyers. They're anything but pastoral theologians. What, again, other than him being pre-Vatican and not having any pastoral sensibilities, was there something about him that would have, would have said, would have made you raise an eyebrow? Oh, pious. Was there more than that? Well, I mean, that, sort of that is enough. But also when people associate the, in the 20th century the, the, the trappings of power or the trappings of sort of papal elevation, the being carried around in the Sadie's Gestatoria, uh, the long cope, the tiara, one associates that with Pius XII. 
Yes, John the Twenty Third was carried around on the Sedes Justitoria. Yes, he wore the cope. Yes, he wore the tiara. But he also initiated the reforms of Vatican II. Pius XII mm-hmm. was just before that. Uh, Pius XII also to augment the papacy. He's the one who, in the middle of World War II, when resources really could have been used in another way, he's the one who set about the the search for the bones of St. Peter. I just sort of want to ask generally uh, what everyone's favorite character was or who everyone's favorite character was. Liz, you want to start? Well, I was just curious. So I didn't watch the whole show. I'm curious. It could, it could be that Sister Mary, something terrible happens to her in like Guatemala or something. I have no idea. But um, it, to me, it, it was an interesting choice for Lenny to bring her in to have this very important role on his staff in a way that was really unexpected by everybody, not only because she's a woman and because she's a religious, but um, because of he, she knows him. She's one of the very few people in the world who truly knows him. So when in those first few episodes, he's set up as being just totally arrogant and kind of faithless and um, maniacal and mentally ill and all of these things, there's still something about him that asks for his closest advisors to be a person who knows him as completely as maybe anybody in the world does. And she steps into that role in a really interesting way. You can see that she's conflicted at times, even the sort of confusion around what to call him and ways to uh, talk to him about what he's doing. But she seems to be, at least in those early episodes, his only real challenger. That was all interesting to me that he made that decision for one thing. And the other is just that in ministry, we all know about the, all of the levels of projection that happen in our own lives mm-hmm. that you, you desperately need those people around you who are going to call you out. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, clergy who sort of stop cultivating friendships or kind of hit the pause button or the ones who sort of bemoan, like, you have no idea what my life is like. It's so hard. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so like, I'm not one of you. Um, you sort of end up, you're a prisoner to that projection and you also hate it and push it away, but you don't have those people around you who are just like, dude, you're making a bad decision or whatever. Well, it speaks to the issue of his sainthood, his saintness, because that is really a place where she is is convinced. He healed, he healed someone. Um, what was the other thing that he did? He, he gets, healed someone. He brings about the pregnancy of the care of the of the Swiss right. guard's wife. Brings about the yes. So these these this element of his saintness that's really important to her, and she is caregiving him while at the same time. You know, when he was very distracted around the parents and all of that, that gets him to sign some things or, you know, really put some things in front of him because he's really distracted. I found that part interesting. The director says something about Sister Mary that now I realize how true it is based on especially what you were saying, Betsy, just that um, she believes he's a saint, but she doesn't think he's a good poke. But he but she also knows he's going to kind of feels like a non-forgetting, but like he's, that he's, she's, he's going to change, he's going to change the world. But in the meantime, he's not very likable. Anyway, she, she witnessed his, she witnessed a, a, a healing when he was young that he did. This comes later in the show. Um, and so she's got that proof already from his childhood. And so she, I think that's some of the um, committedness commitment she has to him. 
but she does try to betray him to try to get him over his parents. She plays that trick on him. And he Mm. figures out that it's her eventually. And I'm amazed she kind of doesn't get sent to Alaska like everyone else seems to. So Uh, even though though she does good work, she needs, she needs to be needed. I mean, she genuinely loves children, but she herself is an orphan, as we later find out. She herself, I think, wants to be a real mother. Um, I mean, a biological mother. Uh, I don't know, Liz, whether you've seen whether you caught her in the middle of the night, but her pajamas say, uh, yeah. "I'm a virgin," but this is an old shirt. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yes, I love that. Uh, yeah, I I think she feels incomplete as a woman. I think she feels empty in the way she fills herself is by being the caretaker for other people. Uh, the the show ends beautifully with her uh, frolicking with the children in Africa. Uh, and that's the fulfillment she gets, and that's a service to the world. But she too is an orphan who feels deprived of, of, of feels that void of love. It was not the way I thought it was going to be, and maybe that's some of what this whole show is. Everything that you kind of thought was that the the PR around it that they're even playing with image in pressing the show out there, right? The whole even the whole name of it. It sounds like a total SNL sketch. Yeah, <laughs> would end up on the cutting room floor. All right, so there's this pope, and he's young, and it's gonna be great. And you know, that's the pitch of the show, and it just sounds awful. It just sounds terrible. But then everybody ends up being something a little bit different than what you might have thought. come to that special moment in the popping collars podcast when we go over staff picks and yes staff picks is my preferred moniker for this section thank you very Not much employee picks i employee feels just too technical it feels too hierarchical staff is like we're in this together we're staff we are it's like a camp like a summer camp <laughs> that's i'm right. on staff you're on staff we're all on staff together who has a staff pick? I see Betsy. <laughs> I do. Just because, you know, the whole inter- interweb started talking about it. So I was like, okay, so I better watch it. Um, so Netflix series, 13 Reasons Why. Teen-focused Selena Gomez produced. Yeah. And just a story about a young woman in, you know, some average location, a location not important, uh, struggling in high school, tough things with friends, uh, ends up commit suicide and or feeling that that is her only way out and then leaves behind these tapes, cassette tapes, retro and throwback to call the cast together of the people who led to her demise. They are passed through person to person to person and we're kind of taking the ride with a young man in her life Okay, good. I need to watch it because I have a lot of problems with this show. A lot. Yes, because I was also really struggling. They chose to show a very graphic, 
her committing suicide. They show her suicide, which is against like all journalistic standards for appropriate ways to even report on suicide. Like they, it's pretty, some people are saying that it's negligent what they did. Yes. And then, yeah, I agree. But then there's also, I, you have to watch the companion piece too, which I also find problematic. It's hard. I think it, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough subject because it deals not only with pills and drinking and socioeconomics and race and sexual, sexual assault. assault. Yeah. That there's this heavy inner life that also is, is an outer life on Snapchat and stuff like that, that is just at work all the time. Here's what I, fa- I mean, there's a lot that I found problematic about this show. And I know we can't do a whole episode on a staff pick, but it feels <laughs> like, like this is an, imp- I think this is important. Um, mm-hmm. I was imagining watching it if I were a parent or if I worked in a context like you do, Betsy, or even um, you do, Ricardo, and William being a Latin teacher at large. It's probably, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know who you teach, William, but if there are young people that, you know, I was worried about if you had a young person in your life who was feeling suicidal. That's one way to look at this. I was also thinking a lot about if I had a child who whose friend died by suicide. Because I think that for any of us who have lost someone to suicide, there's so much guilt and shame and blaming that goes on in your own life. And one of the only advice that I know to give to a survivor in that situation is this is not your fault. This is a decision that somebody else made. It is not your fault. And this show sets it up that it is not her fault. It is these other 13 people did this to her. And that's not true about suicide. It just isn't. And to me that it felt as dangerous for folks who may be struggling with feeling suicidal as it would for anyone who has survived that loss. I've never, I, I haven't read the book or seen the show, but I was teaching or helping to teach at an Episcopal middle school when the book came out and it was wildly popular. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody was reading it and it was, you know, it was in, like an important book. So I'm surprised to hear that at least the series would be so, I don't know, dangerously irresponsible. It sounds like. Okay. I think it might be if used properly and responsibly a way to get some conversation going but inside a place of safety net for for kids thank you all for being on the podcast today thank you liz thank you betsy and a special thanks to william our special guest star latin teacher at large Ricardo, where can people find our podcast okay, maybe where you else? can find it on our website poppingcollarspodcast.com or they might be able to find it on Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, or any other place that you have your podcast needs met. They could even find it on Episcopal Cafe, where we're a member of their podcasting network. Wow. I love Episcopal <laughs> Cafe, Ricardo, and I think you will, too. I think you'll love it, too, for all of your Episcopal news and opinion needs. It is clear who has been a host of this before. <laughs> uh, so that's it for this week. Please tune in next time when we will have a whole other universe to explore. Betsy? Keep those collars popped.